excited to dive into God's Word. If you want to grab your Bible and head over to Philippians chapter 3, that's where we're going to be this morning. We are in a series that we are calling, well, we're in a larger series. If you're visiting this morning, I'll kind of catch you up. We've been working our way through the letter of Philippians, and we started chapter 3 last week in a series called Chasing Jesus. And we've called this series Chasing Jesus because in Philippians chapter 3, Paul kind of begins to make a shift and he begins to show us that this Christian life is first and foremost a pursuit of Jesus. That's what this life is. It's not a pursuit of success. It's not a pursuit of, uh, of personal uh, achievement. It's not a pursuit of comfort. It's not even a pursuit of our own security, but rather it is a pursuit of Christ. And in the first verses of Philippians 3, Paul demonstrates this truth in his own life. He describes how his life before Jesus, as successful as it was, and it was very successful, he describes that his life before Jesus was really nothing more than his attempt at finding a relationship with God on his own terms. That's what it was. Paul, he's going to lay out, we're going to look at it in just a minute, he just kind of lays out this resume, all the boxes he checked that said, if it was possible to find God on your own terms, I would have already found him, right? Here's what he says in verses uh, four through six right in there. He talks about how, basically he said, and I'm going to give you the Darby translation, right? The Darby translation is, Paul is saying, if, I, if anybody had reason to be confident in themselves, If anybody had a reason to feel like they were right before God and that they had achieved something with God, it was me. If if you could have a right standing with God by checking all the right religious boxes, Paul's like, I'm there. I got it. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That goes all the way back early in the Old Testament. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He said, I was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, I was a pure-born citizen of Israel. I was born in the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I raised in political and religious uh, uh, authority. He said, I was a Pharisee, which meant I was an expert in the law. I carried religious authority with me. You saw that practically in the life when, you remember when Stephen was stoned in the book of Acts, they laid their coats at whose feet? At Saul's feet, who became Paul. He, why? Because he was the one that approved the killing. So he was, he was very powerful. He said, when it came to the law, I was a zealot. I, would, I had this zeal for the law, so much so that I persecuted the church. He said, I kept the law without fail. And yet, he comes to the reality in verse 7 and 8 that none of those things, none of them, moved him into a right relationship with God. Paul was working hard. He was doing a lot of good things, Um, but it wasn't moving him. He wasn't getting anywhere. I I thought when I was thinking about it this week, um, I saw a commercial for those Peloton bikes. You know those those Peloton bikes, right? Um, I don't own one, and I know you're looking at me and go, wait a minute, but you have a biker's body. Of course you do. No, I don't own one. And um, I don't know. I'm not sure that they rig them out for, you know, this. And so, um, but these things are really kind of cool. They're impressive, right? Have you ever seen one? Technologically and, and in the engineering on these things, they're really advanced. And they've got this TV screen, this little TV monitor, and you can, 
you can program into that and you can coordinate your ride with other people. And so you feel like you're riding with a group and you can say, hey, I want to, you can almost take a bike ride anywhere in the world. It'll pull it up on this screen. Man, I want to ride today on a trail in the Rocky Mountains. Boom. You'll just, you'll be watching a, a progression through the trail. And as you go, the bike will actually give you resistance, give you that uphill, downhill thing to make you feel like you're riding on. Now look, the exercise bike, I remember growing up, it just looked like a normal bike that somebody took the back wheel off of. That's all it looked like. You know what I mean? That's what I thought it was. And man, these things are unbelievable. But listen, no matter how good that bike looks, how realistic it felt, and how exhausted you are at the end, you're going to get off in the exact same place you got on, right? You're going to get off in the exact same, you might feel a little better about what you did, but you got off in the same room you got on. Spiritually, that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul came to this reality. He says, all these things were an attempt have a right standing with God. I worked hard. I gained respect. I achieved success. And yet none of it moved me one inch closer to God. And listen, we're all on that pursuit. We are all on the pursuit, whether you're aware of it or not, we're on the pursuit of having a right relationship with God, of having right standing before God. And some of you this morning are on the peloton of religion. You're working hard. You're trying to do good stuff. And you don't know why you're exhausted. And you don't know why you don't feel any closer to God. And you're on this, this labor, this, this, this vain labor of trying to get to God on your own terms. Paul felt the same way. He says in verses 7 through 8, so Paul did something here. Paul traded in the Peloton for a relationship with Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had from all that stuff that I was killing it at, whatever gain I had from, from, from the spiritual power, the political power, the success, the authority, the heritage, the resume, all of that, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We're going to camp with that idea of knowing Christ today. The surpassing worth of knowing. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish is a sweet English translation of not that, of dung. That's a sweet English word that we put in there to make it tolerable. But he, that's what he said. He said, I have suffered the loss of all of those things because I have found something of surpassing worth. I thought this was valuable. I found something of surpassing worth, and it is knowing Christ, that I may gain Christ. I, I want to say to us, all of us, that this Christian life has little to do with the religious boxes you check and everything to do with the pursuit of knowing Jesus more. This Christian life has little to do 
It is possible to check a ton of religious boxes and not know Jesus. That's possible. People do it every Sunday. Come in and out. Do the church thing. And don't know Christ. But this, so this is little to do with checking religious boxes. It's everything to do with pursuing Jesus. And in order for us to live a life pursuing Jesus, listen, we first have to deny the life of pursuing self and pursuing and trying to pursue God on our own terms. And listen, the reason we can't pursue God on our own terms is because the one thing that we need, that we must have for right relationship with God, the one thing that you and I must have for right standing with God is the one thing none of us have apart from Christ, and that is righteousness. The one thing you and I must have, you must have this to have a right relationship with God. It's righteousness. Guess what? It's the one thing none of us have apart from Jesus. And that's God's terms. That's his terms. God lays out very clearly how it is that you have right relationship with him and right standing before him. Faith in Jesus. That's it. And what I hope today is that, that for those of you who are on the peloton of religion, the treadmill of trying to find your way to God in a way that you're comfortable with. I hope today what the work that the Holy Spirit will do in your heart is bring you to a place where you understand God has laid out what it requires. Faith in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ. And apart from that, we don't have right relationship with God. And so Paul says, now the singular pursuit of my life is knowing Jesus. That's it. That's all I want to do now. If no one ever thinks well of me again, but I know Christ, it's enough. If I don't make another dollar, but I know Jesus, it's enough. Everything has shifted for him. And that's what I want us to look at and chase after this morning, this idea of knowing Jesus. And again, so I'm going to back up. We, we talked about these verses, but I want to see it in context. We're going to camp out on verses 10 and 11, but let's back up. Let's start reading in verse 8. So Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 8. If you're there, let me hear you say, the Bible is true. Do you believe that? This is the true and living Word of God. And it is applicable. It is relevant. It is precious. And, and it is critical, critically important for our lives. Um, as believers, the Bible is true. Let's start in verse 8. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So twice, one in verse 8, again in verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing him, that I may know Jesus. Well, what does Paul mean by know Jesus? If this life is a pursuit of knowing Christ, then what does it mean to know Jesus? Well, that word know that Paul uses is a word we've dealt with before. We've talked about this word before. It's the Greek word gnosko, which means to know, but it doesn't simply mean informational awareness. Gnosko means intimate acquaintance. It's a knowing that comes from personal experience, not just informational, it's relational, right? Carrie and I have been married 23 years, best 23 years of her life. She would tell you that right now, but I'm not going to let her. Um, 23 years, I know this woman. I know this lady. And I don't just have an academic knowledge of her. I know what gives her joy. I know what uh, causes anxiety. I could pick her voice out of 10 million voices. I could pick her voice out. Why? Because we belong to one another. We know one another. There's a relationship. There's an understanding. There's, uh, it's more than an academic awareness. There's a, there's a relationship there. And the life that God has for us is not a life found only in academic knowledge about God. It's more than that. It's in a living knowledge of having a relationship with God. When Jesus talks about abundant life in John 10, he doesn't say your life is going to feel abundant and full and your cup is going to overflow as you just fill your head with information. That abundant life is a, a life that is born out of experience with him, out of an out of a awareness, a relationship a knowledge of knowing who he is. You know, even demons have an, have an awareness of God. Even demons know who Jesus is, right? But demons don't have life. Why? Because they don't have relationship. This is what Paul is talking about when he says that I may know him. He's talking about experiencing Jesus, experiencing him experiencing him in the fullest way possible. So for Paul and for us, Jesus, listen, let's grab this. Jesus is not merely a subject to be studied. He's not merely an activity that we do on Sunday. He's a person to know. He's a person to experience. He's a person to love. And he is a person to be loved by. And my fear is that this is the reason that for some of you, you feel like something is missing in this Christian life because you know about Jesus, but you don't know him. Have you experienced Christ? Do you know him? Have you been transformed by him? So let's talk about, let's talk for a few minutes about what it means to know Christ. What does it mean to know Christ? I want to give you this big idea this morning. If you want to take a picture of it, you can. It's this. To know Jesus is to experience supernatural transformation by Jesus. 
through fellowship and suffering with Jesus so that I can become like Jesus. What does it mean to know Jesus? I'm going to give you the big idea. We'll spend the rest of the time unpacking it. To know Jesus is this. To experience a supernatural transformation by Him. Then, through fellowship and suffering with Jesus, to become like Him. Paul says, Paul says, I want to know Him. I want to be like... Listen, you can't become like someone you don't know. <laughs> can't do it. Paul says, I want to know Him so that I can become like Him. So what... How is it that we come to know that we know Jesus? How do we know him? Paul gives us, I think, two ways here that we know Jesus, and then one way that in knowing Jesus, it produces something in our life that we're going to look at. How do we know Jesus? Here's the first way Paul gives. We know Jesus through the power of his resurrection. Through the power of his resurrection. Look at the first part of verse 10. Paul said that I may know him and the power of of his resurrection. You know, I think most Christians accept the resurrection of Jesus, right? If you don't, you're not a Christian. If, if, if you're in the room this morning, you say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't actually think Jesus rose from the dead. That's actually critical to the gospel, and you haven't received Christ. If you haven't received the truth that he was dead, now he's alive, right? It's critical. Believe it or not, there is a growing contingent of people who identify as Christian and actually reject the physical resurrection of Jesus, so believers are going to accept that Jesus is resurrected. We accept that Jesus was raised, but I wonder, do we fully comprehend the power and the impact of his resurrection? We know the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a significant event, but listen, it was more than a great historical thing that happened one time. It's more than something we stopped to celebrate on Easter. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is this it's this supernatural force. It's this divine force that has transformed the entire landscape of eternity. It was the greatest demonstration of God's transformative power. And Paul says, I want to know that power. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it transformed the landscape of eternity. Do you know that power? Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection that raised Christ from the dead. So I want you to grab this with me right now. The power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is a power that can be known in your life. You go, really? The power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. Put that statement back up there for me if you don't mind. The power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is a power that can be known in our lives. And I think sometimes we see stuff like that and you go, it feels like I'm saying the power, you know, of a 747 jumbo jet can be known in the body of a Beetlebug Volkswagen, right? That's what it feels like. Are you sure? Because I don't think those things... That's not going to work. I'm telling you, the power. Paul says, I want to know the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Why? Because it can be known. It can be experienced in our life. Again, what does it mean to know? If that power can be known, what does it mean to know? It means to have experienced it. 
It's not enough to academically affirm that Jesus was dead and then he wasn't. It's got to be more than something we're aware of from a distance. His resurrection is something we have to personally experience. Because to know Jesus is to experience a supernatural transformation by him in the resurrection of our own hearts from the dead. How do I know the power of his resurrection? Because he's resurrected my heart from the dead. That is the unmistakable, undeniable marker in the life of every true believer who's given their heart to Jesus. The thing we all have in common, if you are in Christ, is this. There was a moment when Jesus resurrected our heart from the dead. And you go, how do I know if that happened for me? How do I know if he's actually resurrected my heart from the dead? I would tell you, it's why at New Beginnings we don't call salvation or being born again going from being a bad person to a good person. Going from, getting, from being worse to trying to get a little better. We describe it as going from dead to alive. Right? A dead heart starts beating. And you are going to be aware that that has happened because there's a transformation that took place in your life. You go, well, surely I've just been at church all my life, so I got it. Can I tell you something? This feels risky. I don't care if you grew up in church. I'm glad you did, but in the scope of eternity, it doesn't matter if your dead heart has not been resurrected. Hell will be filled with faithful church attenders who never actually trusted in the resurrection power of Jesus and had their hearts made alive. Paul says, I want to know him in the power of of his resurrection. How do we know that? Because it transforms our hearts and making our hearts come to life. This is the single most important event in the history of the universe and you and I experiencing his resurrection power in our lives matters more than anything else we will ever do. Why? Because without it, there's no transformation. There's no right standing before God apart from you and I being resurrected from the dead in Christ. His resurrection matters because his resurrection proves Jesus is who he says he is. His resurrection matters because it proves the penalty for our sin, which eternally separates us from God, has been paid in full, and we can be restored to God. It matters because it guarantees that God can raise us from the dead, no matter how deep and dead you are in sin. He can give you a new life and eternal life, and the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that he's coming again. It matters that you know the power of his resurrection that it isn't just a power that you experience one time and go, got it, done. It's a power you walk in every day in your battle with sin. When God's Word says His divine power has given us everything we need, 
It is saying because Jesus is alive, you can have power over the things that deaden your heart. It's a, it's a power you get to walk in, resurrection power. Christ is alive, which means if you're in him, you are alive. Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Do you remember this moment? Stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus in John 11. And he's heartbroken that Lazarus has died. And you remember Lazarus' sister Martha. She comes to him and she's just destroyed. Do you remember what she says to Jesus? Where have you been? If you would have come a few days ago, my brother wouldn't be dead. I don't, I don't have time to pursue that, but that is a very human thing, right? She experienced the worst loss of her life, and the only thing her human heart could say is, Jesus, you could have stopped it. Why didn't you? Anybody else been there? Had to tilt your head back, look to the heavens, tears coming down. You could have stopped it. Why didn't you? We're going to talk about suffering here in, in, in just a moment. But look at what Jesus says. Martha says, Jesus, where were you? And in John 11, verse 25, I just want you to hear this. Jesus says this. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he dies... Yet, shall he, never, shall he live? And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he looks at Martha, and he looks at Matt Darby, and he looks at you, and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? His resurrection is the anchor of hope for every believer this is why Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has what? Say that word. Raised, Raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. Paul says, I want to know him. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. Do you, have you experienced the transformative power of Jesus' resurrection in your heart, in you being raised from the dead. We know Christ by experiencing the power of the resurrection. Here's the second thing I think Paul shows. We know Jesus through the fellowship of his suffering. Fellowship of his suffering. The rest of verse 10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Once we know the power of Jesus' resurrection, once we've experienced that transformation in our lives, listen, then even experiencing and sharing in his sufferings becomes a joy that we can pursue when we pursue Christ. Now, I'm not saying we pursue suffering. What I'm saying is we pursue Jesus, and in the path of pursuing Jesus, we have joy even if that path includes suffering, and it will. Paul says, I want to share in his sufferings. I want to, I want to know him in this way. 
If you pursue Jesus in a path of obedience, you will experience suffering. Listen, we shouldn't be shocked when we encounter suffering in this life. Amen? God's Word promises that God's people will experience suffering. It's, it's, it's in there. Paul says in Acts chapter 14, he's talking to these young churches, and he said, it is going to be through many tribulations that you enter the kingdom. Paul says, it's going to be hard. You're, you're going to suffer Jesus said in, in John 15, if they persecuted me, guess what? They're going to persecute you. You're going to suffer. Peter tells the church in 1 Peter, you shouldn't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's happening among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing is happening to you. Don't be surprised that this is hard and that they're suffering. In other words, suffering in Christ is to be expected. It's not a strange thing. And Paul tells the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. There's suffering in this life. Why? Why is suffering a part of our life in Christ? Does anybody else want an answer to that? Right? Why is suffering a part of our life in Christ? And if you're asking yourself that today, or you've ever asked yourself, and it made you feel weak in your faith, I, I want you to hear me say this. The most seasoned, mature Christians struggle with understanding the purpose of suffering. I don't care how long you've been a believer or how mature your faith when we all step into a season of real suffering, we all step into a season of having to trust more, believe more, and battle for our faith like never before. Even mature believers struggle to hold on to the purpose of suffering. Paul says, I want to know him. So why do we suffer in Christ? Why is suffering a part of this life? Here's what I want us to see this morning. In the resurrection of Jesus, when we experience the resurrection of Jesus in our life, it produces a new life. Right? Do you believe that? When you experience the resurrection of Jesus in your life, it produces a new life. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls him a new man, an, a new creation. And this new creation, this new person, um, because he has experienced the resurrection power of Jesus, and because he knows Christ, he now has new priorities, right? New passions, a new focus, a new call, a new aim in life. And this new person has died to who they used to be, raised to who Christ wants them to be. And as they walk that out, it's going to create suffering. Why? Because the new man doesn't belong in this old world. You're walking in a world that is not your home. And it's going to produce suffering. Some of you are keenly aware of suffering that came into your life after you became a believer and it pulled you out of a certain friend group. Some of you know that feeling. You had to cut off habits and friends and things that you used to do. And there was ways that you were treated. Some of you are keenly aware of the suffering that comes when you simply stand up for what God's Word says and it costs you something. 
right? When you know you got looked over for the promotion. You know, there's suffering that comes in the path of obedience. And this new life is going to lead to suffering. It's going to lead to suffering as you deny yourself, suffering as you endure persecution, suffering in the path of obedience to Jesus. A few weeks back, I preached a message on suffering from uh, Philippians chapter 2 toward the end of that. What I encourage you, it gives, a, I think, a good theology for this. But this is why Jesus said in Matthew 16, you know this verse, he said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to know me, let him deny himself and take up his what? That instrument of suffering and follow me. We identify with Christ. We know Christ not only by verbally affirming what he did for us on the cross, but by daily dying to ourselves and living to Jesus. And that means enduring suffering. Now, it's interesting, I think, the way Paul phrases this. He says, I want to share in his suffering. Some translations, he says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I find that interesting language, sharing, fellowship. Listen, I roll deep as a Baptist. I'm talking about I've been around a minute as a Southern Baptist. And fellowship, that means something different to me than suffering, right? When I talk about sharing and fellowship, what comes to mind? So you dad come right, dinner on the ground comes to mind. Potluck, you know, pimento cheese sandwiches and fried chicken, that's what comes, right? That's, that's what comes to my mind. That, that idea of celebration and joy and gladness. And yet, that's the language Paul uses when he says, I want to experience a fellowship, a sharing, a joy in suffering. I find that amazing. I want you to remember the theme of this entire letter. What is, it's a three-letter word. What is the theme of the letter of Philippians? Joy. It's joy. Paul said it at the very first verse of, of Philippians chapter 3. He said, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. In Philippians 4, and if, uh, that we'll get into in the weeks ahead, he says, rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. And there is something that stirs in me every time I read verses like this, that I read how Paul knew Jesus. He walked with him. He had experienced the resurrection power in such a way that he could embrace the reality of suffering for Christ, and that would in no way diminish the fullness of joy he had in belonging to Christ. Paul knew Christ in such a way that he could embrace the reality of suffering for Jesus. He didn't try to avoid it. If it meant obedience to Jesus, he embraced it. He could embrace the reality of suffering for Jesus and that would in no way diminish his joy of belonging to Jesus. That is the fruit of resurrection power. Your flesh can't do that. My will, too weak for that kind of stuff. My flesh is too weak for that. How do I come to the place where I can, in suffering, increase joy? I got to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. 
Paul said, I want to know, I want to share, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, and I think about, I think about a season in high school uh, where I went through some very serious suffering. You probably know them as two-a-days. Uh, these were a horrible invention uh, that I don't know where they came from, but I would like a moment alone with the man who invented two-a-days. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's a long practice in the morning uh, on the surface of the sun, and then you go home You go home for 15 minutes and try to find life only to come back and do another long practice uh, in a volcano. It's so hot. And uh, when I went through, Coach, this was back before they get legally obligated to give you a water break, you know. Take a salt tablet, rub some dirt on it, get back on the line. Right, Water was for the week back then. Go vomit, come back. That's just the way it was. And they were horrible. <laughs> they, were, they were terrible. And, uh, but there were, there were two reasons that we endured that suffering as a team. One, because we were in it together. You had your teammates with you. Listen, there was a sharing there was a fellowship in it, right? We were in this thing together. And two, because we knew it was a part of doing something in us, it was a part of refining us into a winning team that this wasn't wasted, there was a purpose in it. As in a matter, and as a matter of fact, when we won as a team, those workouts became something we were actually glad we did. And when we won as a team, you know what? Those workouts didn't actually seem so hard anymore. I think this is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians. You guys have heard me talk about this verse. It is so powerful in my own life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul's talking to a church that is suffering in a season of suffering. And he says, but listen to me, church. We don't lose heart. We're not going to lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away from this suffering that we are enduring, the inner self, that is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In knowing Christ, in, in knowing Him, through the power of his resurrection and what he has done for you and what he is doing in you when our lives are resting in the powerful, transforming hands of Jesus, our suffering becomes a thing we can endure, we can grow in joy because it is nothing more than a reminder that we are dead to this world and alive to Jesus. That's what it is. And by Jesus' resurrection, we are living for a world and being prepared for a world that is coming where there will be no suffering, only the eternal weight of glory. Do you believe that day's coming? We know Christ through the power of his resurrection, being raised to life and every day experiencing that resurrection power in our life, if you don't have that, it may be because you don't know him. And we know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. Nothing teaches me more about who Jesus is and what he has done for me than when what he has done in me costs me something. The fellowship of his suffering. But that is doing something. 
Paul said it's preparing something for us. It takes us to our last point. It's this. In knowing Jesus, we live with the end in view. In knowing Jesus, we live with the end in view. What do I mean by that? When we're in Christ, when we know Him and our, our lives are transformed so that we no longer live for this world, we are living for the world to come. Paul lived this way. He lived with the end in view. He had a goal. There was a, a prize he was chasing We're going to look at that a little bit more next week. And he never lost sight of the prize. Look at verse 11. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There was something Paul was chasing. There was something that mattered more to him than anything else. And it was eternity with Christ. It was being raised with him in the end. It was coming to the end and hearing Jesus say, well done, well done. That's what Paul, he was living with the end in view. He said, when this comes to the end, I want to be raised with Christ. You know, we have one of our sons, uh, Jackson, loves to run cross country, and I have no idea who that boy's daddy is. Uh, It's ridiculous, Uh, but he does. Good at it, too. Loves to run. Those are long races. It literally is what it is, by the way. When it's called cross-country, it means because they drop you off by helicopter in the middle of the wilderness, and you just run your way out. That's, I mean, it's ridiculous, right? You're, you, are across, you are running across the country. That's what you're doing. It's miles of running. And so what we do is we get this little map, and we're, we know the, the, the course they're going to take. And so we would kind of strategically place ourselves around so that when he came jogging by, we could scream our heads off to try and encourage him. And I'm yelling like a psycho, pick it up, buddy. Get the next guy. Lengthen your stride. Deep breath. You know what I'm saying? All this stuff like I know about running cross country. <laughs> and he, he just runs by looking at me like, dad, I'm going to smack you. Quit it. You know? Because he knows I can't run cross country. But I'm, I'm cheering like crazy for him. And it carries cheering like crazy for him. But listen, there's one thing that inspires him more than anything else we could ever say. Do you know what it was? Seeing that finish line. When he would round a corner and he would see the finish line, do you know what would happen? Oh, baby, there's this new life. There's this new energy. He just starts closing out like a freight train trying to run people down. I'm like, where was that guy two miles ago? Right? He is, there is this burst of life when the end comes into view. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to live a life chasing Jesus. Even if it means suffering, no matter what it costs, I'll give up anything to have him. I'll walk in full obedience to him because I want to finish this race well. Why? Because there is a glorious future for those who know Jesus. And it's beyond comprehension. And when this life is difficult on earth, when suffering comes... How in the world will we live out James 1 to consider it pure joy when we face trials if we don't have the end in view? How in the world can I endure in suffering if I don't have the end in view? How do I remain faithful to Jesus if I don't have the end in view? But when we remember the glorious future that God has in store for us, when we live with the end in view, we can endure. I want you to hear the beautiful reality of the end. 
for those who know God, who know Jesus Christ, and who have been transformed, who have been resurrected. John in Revelation is getting this vision of the new heaven and the new earth and this, the holy city, right? He's get, he has this vision and he hears the voice of God himself and here's what it says in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. This, this is God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. How are you going to endure in this life? You're going to take hold of that reality, claim it as your own, and hold it as the precious end that you are running toward. Do you know Christ and the power of his resurrection? Once and for all, I need, if, if you're not sure, I need you to liberate yourself from the, from the thing that says, I grew up in church, my grandma was a believer, my mama was a believer, I should be okay. You're not! You're not okay! Do you know him and the power of his resurrection? Can you point to a moment where you were dead and you met him and he resurrected your heart from the grave? If not, today's the day. Stop playing games. Stop. Listen to the last lie of the enemy and in just a moment, step out of that seat and go, I want to know him. You are risking eternity on the lie that coming to church gets you in. Do you know him? and the power of his resurrection. Does he know you? Are you living in a way that reflects that you have experienced the resurrection of Jesus? Are you walking in obedience? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. I'm going to invite you right now just to stand with me. Just close your Bibles. Let's stand for just a minute. We're going to pray. And I invite you just about. And this morning, if you have sat in your seat uncertain about whether or not you know Jesus, not about him, but you know him because you have a relationship with him, You've experienced his resurrection power. He has made you alive. And you don't know if that's happened for you. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you. Just right now between you and God. 
that you would pray something like this. God, I want to know you. I need the power of the resurrection in my life. I'm done trying to come to you on my own terms. Would you raise my heart from the dead? Give me life. Save me. If this morning you prayed something like that, it's the first time you know that you've truly given your heart to Jesus. And we're going to start singing, and the second we start singing, you got to start moving. It'll be one of the most courageous things you ever do to just say, excuse me to your neighbor and step out and come down. But I'm, I'm challenging you to do that. If you need to be prayed for because you're in a season of suffering, we want to pray with you. If you need to take a step of obedience like baptism, we want to pray with you. But if you prayed that prayer this morning to make Jesus the Lord of your life, I want you to step out and come tell us. Father, for the next few minutes, I just pray your Holy Spirit would move in power. In Jesus' name, amen.